Transcripts and recordings of the podcast may not be used for any purpose without the direct written permission of the podcast owner. Welcome to Light It Up, a podcast about resilient women balancing motherhood, their careers, personal lives, and all of the challenges that come along with being a superwoman. Each week, you'll be motivated to take action to lead, inspire, transform, and empower. Now, here's your host, Dr. Regina Mashira. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a brand new episode of Light It Up. I am your host, Dr. Ajina Mashira. I am so excited about this week's episode because I have a very special guest, another academic, uh, Dr. Ashley Stone, who is a sociologist by training, right? Um, With... Uh, over 15 years of experience in higher education. Um, Dr. Stone studies Black women, which you know is my favorite topic, and Black feminism. And I have invited Dr. Ashley Stone uh, to be my guest today because we need to have some conversations about uh, Black women in this higher education space and anything else that Dr. Ashley wants to talk about. So Welcome to Light It Up. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much, Dr. Regina Muhammad. I'm doing wonderfully. And thank you for inviting me. Finally, we finally got together on this. So thank you for inviting. Perfect timing. Thank you yes. so much. Yes. And and I guess what whenever I have a guest that I have history with, I like to tell my audience, you know, how our paths cross and how we um, came to develop our relationship, but you used to work for the University of Illinois, Chicago. And I don't remember when we connected, to be perfectly honest with you, but you were one of my favorite people on campus. And (laughs) (laughs) And vice versa, right? I know when I first saw you, when I first met you. Okay. was the moment. Can I tell the story briefly? Because you don't, that's how you know you're really good friends because you don't even recall how you met. But folks, you can't stand, cut this part out. No, you, you remember exactly when you met them. You, we were at some event, I think it was Airy, and it was for the prospective Black students. And you came in and I was like near registration and you came in and you said, hi, I'm Dr. Regina Muhammad. You know, you were coming to pick up a name tag. And I think either they didn't have a name tag or your name was misspelled. And you went into your purse. But here's where I fell in love. You said, that's why I bring my own. And you reached into your purse and pulled out a magnetic name tag. (laughs) And that's when I said, oh, because if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. But you, I said, I need to know her. And so I don't know what happened between then and now, other than, of course, but that was the moment when I said, oh, Dr. Muhammad is somebody I need to know, emulate, and roll with. But that's when I, that was 20, that was 2014. Yes. Yeah. I very and, and I actually remember that now because you all know <laughs> when it comes to my name, I don't play about, about <laughs> my name and don't invite me someplace and I'm not on the list. Yes. <laughs> or a name tag that's misspelled because you're not only an employee, you were an alum. And so it's right. like, put some respect on my name, literally right. and but no, I saw the name tag and I said, ooh, 
ain't gonna be good and you're like nope I have my own thank you and proceeded <laughs> upstairs to the to the meeting I said well because that's something I would do so I I knew at that moment I said that's the person you need to hang with so and, and we have been friends ever since then because you were an academic advisor in AAAN, which is known as the African-American Academic Network. And I always tell people that I was a AAAN baby when I attended UIC. And you, um, I just remember you always being the type of academic, you were my type of academic advisor because you didn't play. No, uh, still don't. And still don't, and still don't. <laughs> And coddling students is not your thing. We don't do that, you know, um, but holding students accountable, but also making sure that they understand the resources and supports that are available to them, I think was your number one priority. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes people don't know how to take um, folks who are about the business. Let's Let's just be... Yeah. Real, right. Yeah. Um, so that kind of leads me into this question um, about if you could just talk about your experience, um, because as I mentioned, you're Dr. Ashley Stone. So you did leave UIC and you pursued your PhD um, and successfully defended with distinction. We can say that, yeah. Y'all got that on recording. <laughs> well, say that. I'm saying it was with distinction. Thank you. And and I think that's in part because while I was at UCF, I did win a lot of awards, including the Order of Pegasus, which is the highest award that a student can receive. So with distinction, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but what was it? How did you get into um, the higher ed space? Because before UIC... Were you, you were a student at DePaul or were you at DePaul as an employee? I was both actually. So I started as a graduate student at uh, DePaul studying sociology there. And then I, uh, I just happened upon, I'm always, well, not always, I'm usually in the right place at the right time. So I was talking to someone about employment opportunities and they said, oh, go over to the Irwin W. Stain Center. They probably need a grad assistant and they did. And so I was hired within a couple of weeks from hearing about an opportunity. But as the program coordinator for the community service scholarship, which was the one that I managed, um, working with undergraduate students who had this fantastic scholarship, but also working to diversify the pool of applicants and the recipients of the scholarship. So as more diverse students came into the program, I began to recognize the students of color were coming into DePaul and had this wonderful financial opportunity, but maintaining it was a really great challenge. And so I think in that role, I discovered, okay, I would like to work with students of color, in higher education, I think, you know, this is a side note, but I think often institutions brag about how many black and brown students they get in the door. Mm -hmm. How many do you actually graduate, right? <laughs> how many get across the stage, whether it's four years, five years, six years, but how many do you retain and get across the stage? And so 
I was thinking about advising opportunities and what that would look like. I then moved into nonprofits, but at a point in 2013, a position I had wanted to apply for as an advisor in the African-American Academic Network emerged again. I said, okay, so this time it's mine. And so I went through the process, I was hired. So 2014, I began that role, but that was my dream job was to work with black undergraduate students to ensure that they got in, but also that they got out with some skill sets, um, a level of confidence and some professional development. So that's how I got to AAAN at UIC. Okay. Now, and and once you got to UIC and we could talk about, um, I, I mean, I am an alum and, and we could talk about, there was a point that you made about how institutions talk about the number uh, or percentage of Black students, Black and Brown students that they, um, that enter the institution, but we don't talk about that graduation rate or the retention rate. Um, And 30 years ago, which I know I don't look like I started college 30 years ago, uh, (laughs) Black students were 8% Mm -hmm. of the population at UIC. Fast forward 2024 or 2023, um, it's it's still the same. And although we have increased uh, the percentage of Black students in our fall 2023 um, class, but the numbers are still mm. flat in yeah. comparison, especially when you compare other groups that have had a dramatic increase um, in their numbers. Um, As someone who worked with our undergraduate student population, what do you think um, are some of the reasons why we don't attract as many Black students to UIC? Oh, we're going there. Okay. We're going there. To UIC specifically, you know, I think, oh, I think there's many reasons and this is not placing blame anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think um, for many reasons, uh, I think, okay, I'll start high, scholarships. I mm-hmm. think the understanding of how scholarships work, right, is is a little more available to certain students. So if they have the opportunity to leave, right, the city, if they're from here, mm-hmm. uh, go somewhere else and have a different experience, I think that can be one draw away from the institution. I think... Um, this is for institutions broadly. I think that um, some students just want to go away. Mm -hmm. Um, They may find themselves back at UIC, depending upon what happens at the other institution, but I think students want to go away and maybe aren't factoring in the cost of being an out-of-state student or, you know, what it will take, or just, I think, preparation for college broadly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think another interesting tidbit, I'll just say, I think, how can I say this nicely? I think that UIC has had a long relationship with Black folks in Chicago, and it's it's been a precarious one. I'll say mm-hmm. it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know both of my parents attended UIC when it was Circle Campus, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Many of their friends did. Um, and I'll just say sometimes the stories I hear from my parents from the 70s, I hear from students in the 2000s as mm-hmm. well. And so when I think about, wow, like, 
we're in a whole different century and some of these same challenges mm -hmm. have presented themselves again to a whole new generation, to the children of graduates or former attendees of, <laughs> of UIC. So I think it, it's many things. And I, I remember one colleague at a point saying that um, with social media, if there are students who attend an institution online saying, oh, I hate being here, I can't stand it, I don't like being here. Well, now your friends in high school see it. Now, you know, other people see these things. And so I think it's critical for all institutions to be conscious of branding mm -hmm. in this global society because somebody in a different country, different city, different state can totally look up your institution. And so I've heard multiple things, but I'm thinking from a family perspective, right? I'm thinking from a student perspective. And sometimes I think parents parents want to give their children what they want, you know, mm -hmm. and maybe not necessarily thinking about, okay, maybe UIC is the best option because it's less expensive, but my child wants to go out of state somewhere. So I'm going to send them out, maybe not necessarily with the financial plan, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think there's a lot that happens between K through 12, right? Mm -hmm. That may either draw students to UIC mm -hmm. or move them in a different direction. But I think, I think as far as Black students, I'm just being explicit. I just think about the narratives I've heard as an advisor yeah. and I've heard from my parents and their friends about things they've, even if they graduated, just things that mm -hmm. happened to them that they experienced as Black students at UIC. Mm -hmm. um, and that being the narrative around UIC, unfortunately, in the city, that's the narrative that is associated with that institution. Do you think, and, and I can certainly give some feedback from my own experience um, as as a former student and now working in in that space, but do you think that the historical context that you had in terms of, you know, your parents' experience when they were students, mm -hmm. how much um, influence did that have on the way you advised and, and I think uh, developed relationships with your students in terms of trying to ensure that your students graduated and had a successful experience. Do you think that that had any impact at all in the manner in which you proceeded with your work? Sure. I, I'm, I'm now recalling some stories. It's so funny what comes up in conversation because, you know, most of the people that we went to hairdresser growing up, our family dentist is a UIC alum and his wife is, I'm just thinking about story. I think about all of that and just backing up five steps. As a child who grew up in Bronzeville, a predominantly black area, you know, there were just stories, period, right? And so there was just a way I saw my parents operate with people, particularly among their black peers and, and friends that just influenced. But I think about those stories of how my mother and other students may be cease their education because they were deterred by somebody else right mm -hmm. um, or maybe not told what to expect or someone kind of cast doubt over what they could and couldn't do so they just discontinued their education so that certainly played a role because I could see one I'd been through UIC as a student so I understood the institution in a very different way than somebody who maybe hadn't attended um so that was one thing but also understanding from listening to students just the similarities between family, family, friends, right? It gave me insight to the way that different institutional actors can impact a student's experience. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, um, it's not my story. I won't use names, of course, but one of our family friends was taking an exam um, back when he was a student at Circle, Black guy. 
and he was constantly acing everything. And so during the final exam, uh, his professor did not believe, who was an older white man, didn't believe that he had been passing the class the way that he did. This was a difficult major. I won't say which one. But so the instructor not believing this student stood over him while he took his final exam in the middle of the lecture hall and watched him take his exam because he was in disbelief that a black student was passing this very difficult course. That's the kind of stuff that would come to mind when I work with black students. So I'm looking at and just hearing from students about how faculty talk to them and treat them, uh, how they get treated by campus safety. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm comparing these contemporary issues to things that are seemingly in the past. And so all of that would influence how I would advise, right? And approach students on making the best decisions, not telling them what to do, but just how do you navigate this large research one institution as somebody who is of African descent, right? Financially, mm -hmm. mentally, academically, emotionally, do we respond to this faculty member? If we do, how do we say this? If we don't respond, do we fight? You know, there's so many different things that students, even though, uh, deal with, even though my role was an academic advisor, um, of course, students bring their whole selves and their whole lives to that office. And so people would comment, you're so tired. I said, do you understand? I hear everything from academic probation to should I get an abortion to mm -hmm. A faculty member called me a derogatory name. I hear everything in a day from multiple students. So certainly, short answer, absolutely those things would uh, motivate me to even take the job and, and seek it out. Mm -hmm. And knowing that AAAM was that space for me when things were going awry, when I was a student, right? And so uh, certainly my parents' experiences, although my father's was very different, right, than my mother's experience for the most part. Um, institutional racism, yes, but my father and mother having different phenotypes, having, you know, they just had two different experiences, but both still recognized the racism that was in the institution. So absolutely their stories, our family friends, their friends' stories play in my mind and seeing how those things may manifest differently. But the undertone of all the experiences is that these black students, this is not your space. You don't right. belong here. You're not supposed to be here and we're not going to try to keep you here. Right. And so that was the through line, whether it was 1973 or 2013, didn't matter. That was the undertone was that there was an active, um, push out of black students. And so that was certainly a motivator to be in the role and also how I navigated the role for sure. And so during, and I'm thinking about um, when I was a student, my own experience, which I think was when I compare myself to my peers um, that attended UIC, I would say it was, uh, my experience was vastly different. Um, although I did experience uh, a challenging situation with a professor. So I can identify with being in a space where I may have been one of two Black students yes. in a class, right? And I still know finite math 165, which was the thorn in my side because yeah. I just remember a sea of Caucasian students. And feeling like I did not belong in this space. Um, but I think that I also had the type of personality that I was not going to um, stay down for long. I may have been on academic probation that first semester, yeah. but 
that was not going to be my narrative. That wasn't going to be my story um, because I didn't want to go back home. Right. So for me, I didn't want to go back home and not because home life was bad or anything, but I've, I've said this before to people. My father gave me two options. It was Urbana or UIC and we cut a deal and the deal was I could stay on campus. Yeah. I didn't want to be at home because I wanted to feel like I could have some type of college experience. And so although UIC was not my first choice, um, years later, can I say, was it the best choice? I don't know. Maybe. I still think I would have graduated and been Dr. Regina Muhammad had I not gone to UIC. But my experience there is what caused me to become actively involved on campus, right? And to connect with other Black students and to make sure that we felt seen, heard, valued. So that was how I kind of channeled that energy rather than um, feel defeated or feel like I didn't belong there. And I think um, I can attribute that to just my upbringing. Like my parents always taught me that... Um, this may sound a little arrogant, but that you're better than everybody else. Like, don't ever take a back seat. Really, that's what they told me. Don't ever take a back seat to anybody. Yep. And so I can only imagine though, um, students um, or young people who don't have that type of reinforcement, you know, who don't get that from their family or other um, individuals who could be um, supportive. So I think my experience was different and I was just trying to get out. Right. So that meant I'm going to school year round. Now I incurred a lot of debt. You're yep. taking out student loans, but it was because my goal was to get in and get out. I was yep. not going to be there five or six years. I changed my major and I wanted to change it again, but then I did the math and I was like, nope, I'll have to be here another year. I'm not we're going to stick with this. Yeah. And, you know, um, and that, I think that actually plays, um, a role in how I interact with students and why it's so important, um, in my opinion, for students to see people who look like you and I, right. And I know that you were, a um an advisor for a student org. I can't think of the name of it right now because I want to say sisters something. So there there were a few. So yes. Right. Um yeah. It, so the woman to woman initiative, that's yeah. what you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And that existed prior to me as a specific AAAN program, but so okay. it shifted it slightly. But yeah, that was one of the initiatives that I was coordinating while I was mm -hmm. there. Was and, and what made you decide to take that on in, in terms of coordinating or continuing um, that program? Because that is also where I connected with so many young women on yeah. campus as well. And just, you know, the various topics of, of discussion that you have for these young ladies, you put together a conference, you know, you did a lot of work. I did. of your day job. I still feel job. it to this day. I still <laughs> feel it. I wake up like, oh, I'm aching, you know, but um, 
actually the woman to woman initiative existed prior to my arrival at mm -hmm. UIC. Mm -hmm. So there was myself and one other uh, young woman who was also an advisor in the department. And then she wound up leaving. So uh, at like, right, like at the beginning of an academic year. So the students, you know, the, the program had already kind of been set up with, it was a mentorship program initially. And then it's like, well, do we let it not happen or do I just take it over? And so after some conversation, I said, okay, I'll just, I'll just, I'll do it. Right. Um, but I recognized that it wasn't maybe working the way it was intended and that's nobody's fault. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't working that way. And, and it was a mentoring program, but I recognized that the mentors were not connecting with the mentees. And I said, this ain't working. And then mm -hmm. me being the social emotional <laughs> person I am who also operates from a place of spirituality, I said, I think the reason it's not working is because each individual young lady needs something. And so how do we make woman to woman a space where we can talk generally as opposed to having this mentor mentee dynamic, which is fine, but I just don't think this group was ready for that. And so I said, okay, why don't we just open it up? And then I thought, I also just thinking about my own upbringing and I was thinking about my parents, right? My mother and her friends who were at UIC because on a side note, from what I gather from people who were at Circle at that time, there wasn't a AAA in yet. There was one black person, right? Who would advise every black student. So I remember bringing one particular person on alum. Her name is Diane Dinkins Carr. And she told the girl, she said, the young lady, I should say, she told me that there was no Ashley. There was one person you went and talked to them for 10 minutes and you, you know, that was it. There wasn't an entire department. So part of my goal was in thinking about the stories of my parents, their peers, one, one, how do we help these young ladies while they're in this unique space in college and they're away from home, kind of, you know, they're in college to grow and expand and engage in neuroplasticity and all those brain things, right? But how do we help them understand themselves as Black women? Because I would hear some things that were interesting <laughs> from the young women that were like, bordering on self-hate. And I said, okay, we got to address that. Right. Um, but also just seeking that space. So, and then I had the idea to, I said, well, they can see me and that's fine. But, you know, I remember quickly, this is why I invited you and other black women because y'all were there. But I think when you get to a certain level of administration, you're not visible, like you're visible, but you're invisible. Mm -hmm. and, and so I remember we were having a retreat for the cohort one year and I asked them, I said, do you all see any other Black women on campus besides me? Because somebody said something that made me think, like, is it just me that you all see? And they said, yeah, most of the girls said, yeah. And then we kind of broke for lunch. And one girl said, well, no, I see other Black women on campus, the cooks and the custodians. Mm. And I said, okay, so I got to start bringing in other Black women that they don't see yeah. that they're there, right? And again, trying not to put additional labor on other Black women I work with, but just recognizing, unless you had a Black woman who was a faculty member, right? Which we know the numbers of Black faculty who are women are small anywhere, but recognizing they weren't seeing. So, so here's what they weren't seeing from my perspective. They're being told, go to college, go to college. They got here. Now they show up and they don't see anybody who looks like them. Mm -hmm. right doing the end goal and yes 
see the cooks, see the custodians. Those women have value also. Mm-hmm. And we're telling you to go to college, but we're not showing you. Here's, here's what I think about students generally, especially Black students. I think we tell our students for the most part, go to college, go to college. We don't tell them what to do when they get there. We don't tell them how to get out, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, like that's the challenge. So that's where I would bring in yourself, mm-hmm. other colleagues we knew at that time, because I recognize, and just from listening to the young women, they weren't seeing the potential of what they could be or what they were even supposed to do in college or what a degree could grant them if they were going to pursue this path because we know everybody doesn't go to college. So that's where I said, let me switch the structure of woman to woman so that um, we can get into some deeper topics. Yes, mentor, mentee, that's great. But um, I think there's some other issues we need to address for young Black women. And, And to be very honest, I saw those kind of initiatives and programs actively happening for young Black men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all the time right mm-hmm. and I remember people saying well you know black girls they don't need anything they're they're fine they're strong black women and so I remember just see you're bringing me to a flashback Regina because I remember even that <laughs> conferences and I would say the students did those kind I ushered them through but they put those and that was their idea was to have a conference mm-hmm. and we did it two years in a row but part of the reason why was because the narrative around black undergraduate women was that they're fine they don't need anything we got to focus on the boys. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, we got to focus on them. But just because Black girls have higher GPAs and they are here in greater numbers doesn't mean they're okay. Right. And that's where there was a little bit of a beef between me and some people. Well, mm-hmm. they was beefing with me. But there were like, but you know, that program, as valuable as it was, mm-hmm. and I appreciate you mentioning it, I caught so much flack mm-hmm. for focusing on young black women. Um, and so it, it, it was a wild time, but yeah, but I did it because I knew, I knew the experience I had at UIC. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I had the wherewithal to go and make an opportunity for myself. Mm-hmm. I directed uh, Intozaki Shange's for colored girls as an mm-hmm. undergraduate student. Cause mm-hmm. I'm like, we need, they were doing the vagina monologues and that's fine. Where's the black show, right? And so that was just in me to do based upon my socialization. Mm-hmm. But I had a wonderful experience at UIC because I made it that. And so how do I embolden these young women to do the same thing? Yeah, maybe UIC wasn't your first choice. I would always hear there was always somebody, I wanted to go to Howard. Well, you ain't at Howard, baby. You on Halston. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not there. And that's fine. But while you're here, instead of griping about what it's not, how do you make it what you want it to be, right? right. Because we we know we don't get handed anything. Right. Um, and so how do we create the kind of experience that we want? And so, yeah, but woman to woman is as great as it was. And I still get emails and thank yous now years later, but it, it was hell because I, the thought process was how dare you do something just for black women you need to either include black men too or you need to include all women of color not just black girls and it's like they need a space for themselves and it's fine because I'm sure if there were any other group doing it there would be no question about them doing it or there would not be a call to include everybody else but because it's black girls doing it for themselves by themselves Mm -hmm. we disrupt that yeah. So yeah, I'm a very popular staff member on campus. <laughs> <laughs> there was something though, to your point of mentioning um, about black girls, young black women being strong and how they don't need certain level of support or this extra support. That also transfers to black women who hold roles in this higher ed space. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so much that we can unpack here because um, I think from both our our experiences um, in this space, along with, you know, some other women that we know, mm-hmm. um, when there's a certain expectation, I'm, mm-hmm. I'll say this, that um, we are going to be the ones who put everything together, right? Yeah. Whether yeah. it's the coordination, planning of programs, um, and then somebody else gets the credit for our work. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> so how, as someone who works in this space, how do you, how do you deal with that? better than I used to. I'll start there. So I think that was a wonderful experience being at UIC as a staff member because I had to deal with that firsthand, right? Like it it came from all directions. It came from, I think it came from everybody, but maybe not from faculty, Mm -hmm. but from students, from other staff, um, I I have we won't take up all your day with this <laughs> podcast record, but I have stories, right? Like there was uh, always the expectation that I was supposed to do everything and do it with a smile for no extra pay, for no recognition, for no promotion. But um, it it was it was the moment where I had a shift, which I'm happy to help. I'm happy to do my job, mm-hmm. but I think there were many moments where uh, I was just able to really begin to grasp. And that was in my late, I think I turned 30 right after I started working at uh, the African-American Academic Network. But that was when I first started realizing how people perceive Black women. Mm -hmm. And what we were supposed to take, it it really made me reflect on my own socialization. Not that that came from my household, because my parents did not do gender in the way Mm -hmm. that was expected, Mm -hmm. but certainly the way society expected me to be as a Black woman. And so I think in in any space, irrespective of whether you have a PhD or not, mm-hmm. irrespective of your title, you know, there's a research study that talked about whether the black woman is a secretary or the CEO, she's still expected to do emotional labor, right? Physical labor. And so that was one of my first lessons in it and experiencing it from um non-Black people of color, Black people and white people, right, simultaneously. And so I think at the time I was figuring out how to navigate all of that, you know, as somebody who um, was in my, about to turn 30 and in my early 30s, just still wanting to be collegial, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But also recognizing that people didn't care about my feelings or my my well-being at all. It was just, well, we know it's a lot, but okay, here, do more, right? Okay, you're tired, do more. Oh, well, but you do it so well and you must like doing it because you do it well. So I remember at a point there was some kind of program going on and uh, I told everybody what I was not going to do mm-hmm. and people got very upset. I said, no, this is the this is the event. There's 12 of us here, so I'm gonna do this much mm-hmm. and people flipped oh my God, what do you mean? You're not going to help. So then the the narrative became that I was not a team player. The narrative became that I was difficult, right? All the words we weaponized uh, against, like those microaggressions we weaponize against Black women. I didn't care. 
<laughs> because I had seen the other side where things were being pushed upon me. I was tired. I was exhausted. People would look me square in the face. You look so tired. Oh my gosh, you really should rest. But can you go take care of that over there? You know, it's like people would tell me, oh my gosh, you really need to take care of yourself and then make a request in the same breath, right? Constantly. And so while that was a challenge, and I was, you know, I'm still vocal about my boundaries um, today, but that was the beginning of, okay, so we have to, I was expecting people to treat me humanistically. And that's when I realized like, oh, I understand how people see us mm -hmm. as Black women now, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. And so as, as opposed to getting frustrated with the expectation that everybody's going to be fair and equitable mm -hmm. and operates in the same way that I do, not that I'm perfect, but does operates in that way of, you know, everything has to be equal. We have to learn to assert ourselves and set boundaries because if we don't, we're going to continue to be frustrated. We're going to be unhealthy. We're going to be whatever. So um, that was my my training ground too. And and I, it's been a slow process, right? Over the past mm -hmm. almost ten years. Oh, it's been almost ten years since I first got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been years since I started working there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it that but that was the beginning of me really understanding that uh, what people expect of Black women, how they see us. Mm -hmm. um and what happens when you don't give people what they expect even if they have not asked you <laughs> if you are willing to give of your time energy greatness it was my lesson and people want to use my genius for themselves and I'm not going to allow that you just said a mouthful <laughs> and now you're on the other side because you're um faculty now at can I name your institution or, or go for it, go yeah. for it. at, at yeah. DePaul and you've done some phenomenal things at DePaul and you just got there thank like you what a year ago has a it year been ago yeah. yeah what and hmm, trying to figure out the best way to phrase this question but from your experience because you talked about setting boundaries and the expectation that people have of Black women. Um, what advice can you give to other Black women who are working in this higher ed space as far as how they can set boundaries? Because sometimes that could be easier said than done. Some of us may feel this um, sense of obligation to always go the extra mile. And it's quite interesting that you may mention about how people will ask you to do this one last thing. I had someone just um, maybe a week or so ago, I was invited to participate in a committee meeting. And because it was student focused and student centered, and I want our students to see me present, I attended. Mm -hmm. And I was asked to co-chair something. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you know that I currently have about six or seven jobs? Yeah. But the expectation was that I was going to say yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also say that this is November. Yeah. And no, is in November. But oh. what do you, and sometimes I do feel guilty. Mm -hmm. um and 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 it is a challenge for me so I'm also asking this so you can speak some life into me um you know I I I'd say I welcome all advice mm -hmm. um good advice 
But what do you say to the women who feel like they've got to go this extra mile because you know we're held to a different standard yeah. than yeah. others? Oh, you know, I think this is still something I'm navigating and trying to to do. But mm-hmm. I think I so first and foremost, I have to pause and understand. When it comes to service, which is part of some of our jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Where do my interests align? What am I really desiring to to do, right? Um, because we want to do it all. Um, so that's the first thing is what do I want to commit myself to? Number two, do I have time to commit myself <laughs> to the thing being asked of me? Mm-hmm. Um, and three, this is not in a particular order, but three, mm-hmm. I have to go back to those moments where, and I just, for me, I've been, I don't want to say I've been burned, but I've been in situations where I've been burnt out enough where now it's like, uh uh-uh. And I'm going to say four, this is in no particular order. This is just my thought process in the moment. Uh, Four, lockdown was wonderful. Don't get it twisted. I'm sad that people died. I don't like how the pandemic was handled, but lockdown made me reevaluate everything because mm-hmm. I think I saw so many people getting married, getting divorced, having babies, whatever, but just, we saw death on a ridiculous level, right. In that, in that, which, which could have been avoided. Right. Quite right. frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing death, I think in that way, whether it was my personal life or my friend's life, or just in the environment made me think about how do I want to live my life going forward? And what will I and will I not tolerate? Now, simul- that's pandemic. Now, simultaneously, I'm going through the doctoral process, which anybody who's gone through a PhD program, whether they finished or not, the PhD makes you a whole different kind of person. Yeah. I'm going to keep my language clean. On <laughs> the PhD <laughs> makes you a whole, and not in the sense that I think I'm better than, because I have a PhD, but you are put through the ringer and you have to fight for yourself in a doctoral program. Mm-hmm. It is really, uh, it's, it's a battle, right? And so between those two experiences, I just said, how do I want to live going forward, right? And so those things shifted me. So how I do it practically is, because I think people, uh, you know, people people sometimes don't approach Black women directly. It's kind of hope we take things on. When mm-hmm. someone brings me something now, because I didn't do this before, because I love people. And here's what I, I don't think people are inherently negative, bad, or malicious, I do think, however, people know that Black women do things with a high spirit of excellence. Mm-hmm. I think some people know that Black women want to serve some, you know, to an extent, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not No generalizations, right? right? But, you know, Black women are giving. We serve. We want to We want to make sure stuff go. We operate with a high spirit of excellence, even in non-paid <laughs> opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, again... I have to, but I had to look at me as well. And so I could sit here and point, and not that you're insinuating, but I could sit here and point fingers. Well, they made me, nobody made me do nothing. I agree to all this. Right. Same way I see my male colleagues, right? Turn things down. Or I see my white colleagues advocating. And it was hard because people really don't know what to do when black women say no to something. They really don't know how to respond. So here's what I do now. I know people watching going to be like, oh, that's what she did to me. Yep. This is what I do now. Mm-hmm. I'll take, because I have so many things going on. And part of it was, I had to think about how do these opportunities align with my personal or professional goals? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is after years of watching 
I'm scratching and clawing and taking care of things in many different institutions, not just in education, but mm -hmm. I'm scratching and clawing. I'm staying up till 2 a.m. And I'm seeing, you know, in the age of social media, people forget you can see them. And, right. with them. and it's like, I'm sitting up here at 2 a.m. making an agenda mm -hmm. for this open house, but I'm seeing the guys down at the bar. Mm -hmm. Right. Or even in the office, I'm sitting in the office hustling and I'm watching my colleagues go out to three or four hour lunches. Yeah. without a thought of what can I do to help, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be comfortable as Black women letting the ball drop, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so here's what I do. And on the job, I'll do this. Well, I'll go in order of what I do now. Somebody brings me an opportunity. Let's say it's not work-related. Mm -hmm. They'll give it to me. So I ask them a few questions, not in this order, but I ask them, number one, um, who all over there, who's involved? Mm -hmm. That'll help me know who I'm working with because some people have a reputation. And so I, again, I'm not perfect, but I watch how people work mm -hmm. and I make mental notes on who I will never work with again, right? In a collaborative setting. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. ask who's involved. What is the time involved, right? What's the time commitment? How long is this project? Number three, um, why do you want me on this project, right? Let mm -hmm. people tell you how great you are. They may not, but I, I, I press people to, why do you want me? Because you can get anybody. Why do you want me specifically? And number four, if you don't remember one through three, because I don't use those often. Number four is always for me. Uh, what is your expectation of me on this project? Mm -hmm. And then when they tell me what the, and, and that's where most folks fumble. I yeah. had a colleague uh, <laughs> recently say, I did what you said and told them. What are your expectations of me? And they couldn't answer the question. I said, exactly. Because mm -hmm. their expectation for you as a Black woman was to do it all. Oh, exactly. And they were going to sit back, take credit, pat themselves on the back, maybe throw you a little crumb, but they weren't going to help you. Um, so I asked that question, what are the expectations of me? And if it's a group, I'll ask, what is the division of labor amongst the group? Who going to mm -hmm. do what? Right. Because I think that's the part and I've seen it in nonprofits. I've seen it in higher ed. I've seen it in religious organizations where everybody has a great idea. And then we leave the room and we haven't clarified who is doing what and what's the timeline for completion. So that may sound very technical, uh, but that's how I have to get down, you know, because I know people will expect me to do a lot because I operate with a high spirit of excellence. So the final coup de grace, just to stick it to him, right? I'm, I'm not vengeful. I just have a process. <laughs> I guard myself in my time. I guard my mind, my body, my spirit, and my time nowadays because I have other things to do. And I'm not the girl I was years ago. I'm pushing 40, right? So I'm a different post-pandemic, post-PhD. I'm a different girl. So my final thing after, if they're able to articulate what the, all those points for me, I say, okay, um, I'm going to think about this for 48 hours and I'll get back to you with my decision. Thank you very much. Give yourself space to decide. Do And usually I know if I want to do it or not in the moment. I'm telling all my secrets, but I'm, I'm telling black women because this, this is what we got to do. But, <laughs> right. but, you know, and if folks figure it out, whatever, I don't care. But the, but the point being that, you know, I'm going to give myself 48 hours to really assess. Do you really want to do this? What's the cost benefits? Were they able to, to think about what was presented to me? Mm -hmm. Because that's going to tell me how the rest of the engagement is going to go <laughs> if I decide to sign up or not. So short answer, the way I guard my time is what are your expectations of me on this project? And even if I hear it, whether I like it or not, I'll say, well, give me 48 hours to, to contemplate before. Whereas previously, I would just say, okay, sure. 
because mm-hmm. that was my spirit to help. Mm-hmm. I'm down for helping. It's funny. This is going to sound bogus, but the other day somebody called me saying, you know, I got, I got a young black sister who, you know, needs help with X, Y, Z. And I said, okay, well, she can call me mm-hmm. if she wants help. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of baffled by my response. And they were, we went back and forth and they said, yeah, but don't, you know, and, and they wouldn't tell me who it was. They weren't giving details. I'm like, well, who is it? What do they want? What's, you know, I have a life <laughs> and, right. and I'm going to say this real quick, because I know you often deal with topics of marriage and children. I'm a single black woman with no kids. So folks really think I have all the time <laughs> in the world. Mm-hmm. I like to go to the spa. I like brunch. I like sleep. I like Netflix. I'm very involved with my, I'm a family girl. Like we do stuff weekly. So like, I don't have all this oodles of time. Right. And even if I did, you got to respect my time. But back to this interaction, it was like, a, you know, so there was a question of, well, don't you want to help another black woman? And without even thinking, I said, the black woman I want to help right now is me. Yes. And, and yeah, that little sister needs help, but right now I don't have the capacity. So, and Mm. and here's also why final point, the reason why I go through these steps and motions, because I would find my bringing it back to me, Mm -hmm. not to beat myself up, but, you know, given my religious beliefs as a Buddhist, you always got to come back to you, right? Right. Even if you ain't Buddhist, you got to come back to you. Cause I, I would find myself in these situations and then I would be like, why am I always in this situation? And finally I said, fool, because you keep saying yes to everything, mm-hmm. right? And then what, this is the cycle of what would happen with me. Somebody would bring an ask. Mm-hmm. I would say, yes, I would wind up doing it all. And then by the end of the project, I'm resentful. Yeah. Because now I've canceled plans. I've switched around my schedule. I've moved my life around to accommodate somebody else who's not reciprocating what I'm bringing. Mm-hmm. So now I'm mad at them, but then I'm mad with me, right? And mm-hmm. I don't like being mad. It kills your T cells. It makes you sick. I don't like doing that, right? Just thinking about health and disease and the and what stress does to the body. So mm-hmm. all that to say, it really came down to how do I want to feel? And, and really I'm going to go a step further. And I've shared this on blogs and other spaces. I had to really dismantle for myself as a black woman, the idea that my value only came from serving other people. Mm. Because there was a part of me that wanted to be superwoman in my teens and early 20. I wanted to save everybody. I wanted to be the one everybody came to. I wanted to be really mammy. Mm -hmm. and that stuff got old real quick right it got old very quickly so I had to in the process do some deep self-reflection right through therapy through religion through different avenues uh and and homegirls who would hold me accountable to myself I had to really go deep and dig it because I would find myself in this cycle and it's like well we can't blame them yeah they're wrong they should help you but you can't blame them if you keep signing up because ultimately I thought that my only value as a black woman was the service I could provide to other people. And the truth of the matter was a quick, quick story. This is when I knew I got it. Mm-hmm. Somebody said to me, they wanted me to do something and I rejected it. And they said, you know, no, but you know, we really, we really want you to do this task. And I said, why? They said, we like you. And I said, you don't like me. You like the service I provide for you. That's two different things. You don't like me. You like how I work. You don't like me. You Mm -hmm. like what I can do for you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, damn, Ashley, that was good. So I started Mm -hmm. using that line right in my head, but it it came out so natural. So no, you don't like me. You actually, this person, you can't stand me. You like how I operate though. You like that I get stuff done. You like that I not only meet, I'm done before the deadline. You like that I'm detail oriented. You don't like me. 
you like what I can do. And that is two different things. And I was like, damn, last point with a therapist, Gina's all into it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did an activity called the Jahari's window when I was finishing my PhD. Okay. We went through the Jahari's window activity mm-hmm. and it's really getting to know who you are and how others see you and how you see yourself. And I realized I have no identity outside of the work I do for other people. Mm. And I told some of my close friends at the time, this is in the midst of lockdown, we're on a Zoom. And I said, y'all, I don't have an identity. Mm. And they were like, yeah, you do. You do this and you do that and you help people and you coordinate. I said, again, I do those things. That is not who I am. That's two separate things. Right. So my friends got quiet. I got quiet. It, it wound up being good, you know, but it was that moment of like, wow. And I really had to reconcile after doing the Jahari's window. I don't know who I am at, at, at the time at 35, 36, 37, I didn't know who I was outside of what I do for everybody. So fast forward, I do ballet, I crochet, I take tap. I'm at Orange Theory. Now, like I, I have to find, like, who am I? I think the doctoral process changes you anyway right I think and you have to really refine who you are because the academy that's a whole nother blog for another conversation what the academy does to people Mm -hmm. and I think people are being open about that now but Mm -hmm. coming through that doctoral process I had to humanize myself but also like through that Jahari's window activity with my therapist it was like who are you Mm -hmm. right what do you like doing yeah, we all like to sleep. We all like to watch it. Like, like, but who are you, right? What identity do you have outside of your relationship to others and what you do for them? So again, I think it was horrible that we lost so many people unnecessarily, I feel, um, in the pandemic. But lockdown was a moment of just sitting and uh, still processing some things that happened in lockdown. But just sitting really helped me to reevaluate a lot of things. But I always got to ask people what their expectation is of me and take responsibility for what I take on, you know, because that resentment was just eating me alive. And so now people are like, you look different. I'm like, probably, but I think it's because I'm living differently that I look differently to some people. So the long answer, well, that's the response, <laughs> how, how I got to, because it, it was steps. It was steps. Yeah. And I think, and what a friend of mine recently commented, you're stepping into your freedom. You're stepping, mm-hmm. you are a freer black mm-hmm. woman when I first met you. And so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I did. Ooh, child. Well, I don't think I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> you're on your way. You're on your way. I'm on my way to freedom. <laughs> yeah. But, it, but it's a deep unlearning, right? Cause we maybe yeah. didn't get home, but I just think back to my childhood and even being adultified as a child, right? Mm-hmm. In school, like the expectation was always, well, you got to, I mean, I was always mama. Mm-hmm. Even, and even in lockdown, it was a realization of, I don't think I've ever been allowed to be a child. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever been allowed to fail, to mm-hmm. mess up, be human, be a kid, whether that was childhood, high school, undergrad, whatever it was, I've never been allowed to fully be humanized. And so I have to do that for myself at this yeah. point. Because other folks don't know how. <laughs> right. And one of the things, a, a, a direction or a point that I wanted to bring up, but I think we may need to have a part two. Yes. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this year, we all um, witnessed, and I don't know how many people who are watching this are even familiar or did they just say, oh, um, 
that happened and went on about their business, but the death, the untimely death of two um, African-American women presidents of institutions, higher ed institutions, one of, of whom was in the midst of giving a speech. Yeah. Yeah. And she collapsed and the program went on. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, when I, and I had, um, male colleagues from other institutions sending me, you know, sending the article, of course I read about it. And, you know, in that moment I thought about it, it took me back to, and these are relatively young, you know, right. Yeah. And it took me back to when I worked for Chicago public schools which I worked there for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I remember being pregnant with Kamal and Aaliyah. Mm -hmm. This was 20 years ago. And five months pregnant at that in the hospital, not knowing whether I was going to deliver them or not at five months because I was in preterm labor. And I had to immediately go out on... um, FMLA. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call from first it started out as my from my supervisor who was a Caucasian man. Wow. And of course I was there to make him look good. Um but he had someone who was my assistant at the time, another black woman. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. We may have been the same age. But to call me to ask me about some work. And it was in full transparency that moment after I gave everybody the business and we called the president of the board of education at that time and former CEO, Arnie Duncan. Yes, I am name dropping here, but this is unacceptable and I will file a complaint. You have violated my rights, but it was in that moment where my entire perspective about being a professional in the workplace and my perspective about a job in general changed because what I knew in that moment was that if I dropped dead tomorrow, (laughs) they were going to have somebody else in there to replace me. And it was going to be business as usual. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And so these particular incidents, which occurred, what, in, I think it was in September of this year. It was, I'm looking, uh, Dr. Epps passed away on September 19th. Yep. Uh, Dr. Montauk was September 22nd. So yep. three days, three days, three days apart. But that I think was a, a wake up call for me because I know how, in the last nine months, how I've been operating in my role. Yeah. And I, you know, you and some other friends and family who've been concerned about, hey, Agina, <laughs> what are you doing for you? Like, I see you at all of these different, you know, events and I'm doing all of the things, taking on more work, more responsibility. Um, but that was a wake up call because. And it took me back again to that, that space, um, 
when I worked for Chicago Public Schools and I had to start to put some things in perspective. I've got to start setting boundaries. So I have learned how to say no and people don't like when I say no. I was asked to to do something or take on um, something. And when I said no, it was questioned whether or not I was a team player. Mm-hmm. Of course. So just as you mentioned, and it's like at some point, we have to protect ourselves and set those boundaries. Um, but I think that people don't understand the plight of Black women, especially in this particular space, because you're not only fighting a battle with people who don't look like you, but oftentimes you're fighting a battle with the people who do look like you. Yeah. I mean, you know, as someone who acknowledges and teaches intersectionality, you know, and just in the trajectory of my entire time in higher education, sometimes, sometimes white men were my strongest advocates. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was, it was older black women who were the hardest on me about what I was not doing and calling me, you know, not a team player. And so I think there's definitely you know, generational differences. There's definitely, you know, there's, there's all kind of differences, right? When these things come up. And I think the, the research is there, mm-hmm. right? Which is why I think it's so disappointing in higher education, especially for those of us who have a doctorate because our whole doctor is trained you to do research. So if you don't know, go figure it out, right? What's happening with black women. And so the information is there, but those two sisters dying three days apart, I think was a wake up call for a lot of us to say what we are and are not going to do because that event did go on. Right. Um, you know, the, from what I gather, and this may not be, you know, accurate, but the person who held Dr. Epps's hand while she died, just continued the speech, like nothing happened. And so, uh, you know, it, it, the unfortunate thing is, and I've said this to many people and it's not, you know, true across the world, but I think sometimes with black women, people appreciate us in our absence and not in our presence. You know, I've seen this online and talked about it with friends where, you know, big mama dies and everybody talks about how great big mama was. And we didn't even talk about her. We talk about what she did for us, yeah. right? But we didn't tell her while she was here, but also big mama need help, right? Like we we lean and we lay on big mama without really humanizing her, right? And what she needs. And so, you know, I, I think there's a shift that's been happening, right? And it's coming from different directions, but I think it's a, a constant continual process of engaging with Black women who are engaging in that, you know, dismantling that uh, strong Black woman trope, you know, and the, the need to be superwoman, um, you know, and, and especially now when even though people may not recognize it, but I'm seeing non-Black people of color, um, you know, and white people employing that strong Black woman, you know, trope of us to justify their mistreatment of us, or I'm giving you more, because I can't tell you, and you know, in and outside of higher ed, how many times I've had people tell me to my face, Ashley, we give you more, we're harder on you, because we know you can take it. Mm-mm. and and then here we are fast forward 10 years later Ashley don't talk to me you wonder why <laughs> like why would I associate with somebody who thinks abusing me right. is appropriate right because I seem like I can take it so, and that has ramifications for a bit anyway you know it's it's really wild how that idea of the strong black woman really is not um of course, we employed it for some time, and I think Black women are employing it less, but as I've gone around in different circles and lived in Florida, <laughs> just mm-hmm. seeing how the strong Black woman trope, as much as folks who are not Black women sometimes try to claim, well, I'm not familiar with Black women, I don't know, 
somebody in Florida told me that, well, I'm not, I don't know much about black women. I said, but you know, when something is effed up to go right. look us to fix it. So don't right. tell me you don't know, because you've been right. socialized to not only think of us a certain way, but to come get us when there's trouble, when there's a problem, when there's an issue. And I told a colleague of mine, I said, the first person I always see you run to is a sister. Mm-hmm. Every time you get into a bind. Mm-hmm. So don't tell me you don't know Black women. You, mm-hmm. don't, maybe, you don't know our humanity. Mm-hmm. You want to go find us when you need something cleaned up. And that's the that's the reason why I didn't jive with this individual, right? So, so I think it's a shift, right? And I think the shift has to come from us. And I'm seeing more women embrace it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, and, and it's a part, because how do you undo all that socialization, right. right? How do you undo all that? So especially given, you know, I mean, we don't look as old as we are, right? But we're talking about <laughs> years of socialization right. that uh, that's very subtle, you know, and can be very loud simultaneously. And so I, I think, you know, we're doing it, it. And that's why we have to keep each other accountable to continuing right. to do it. Because, yeah, you know, I don't want to see anybody go out like that. You know, nobody should go to work and not come home because exactly. the job potentially stressed on the hell. And even though these are two sisters we're talking about, because it's on social media, as it should be, mm-hmm. I hear this story all the time of Black women dying, <laughs> you know, because of stress in their 40s and 50s in yeah. high bed right and yeah people said oh so and so died and then the job ad was posted Mm -hmm. by five o'clock the same day so what what are we giving ourselves for and and what are we giving to ourselves is where I'm at now is the question Mm -hmm. so yeah you know and I think it's challenging for us because we have parents who were deeply involved and service was the model right Mm -hmm. like my parents were in PTA they were at the LSC meetings I was with them you know, highly involved in religious organizations. So we, that was the model we saw, right? While they were parenting and being in a marriage and taking care of, and that's what we saw. And I think that's important, but it's also like, okay, now the game has changed a bit. So I think it's also just hard to detach as black women and how we've been socialized, but also as people who just, we come from families that do great service, men and women. Right. In our families, that's, that's what we've seen. And so that's why the sifting through it is so important. And what do I want to engage in? Why do I have the time and capacity, you know? And if not, it'll be there later, you know, potentially, right? Um, and final question to myself, what kind of life do I want to live? <laughs> How do I want to feel, right? There are going to be challenges, yes. But, you know, what do I want my life to look like? And I'm the person who curates that. Nobody else used to do that for me, so. Well, that is, I think, a great note to end on, but <laughs> what I want to know before we end with your work um, and your studies focused on Black women and feminism, do you have anything that you are working on that you like to share with us right now or we can come back and talk about it at another time sure another date sure I think most immediately I mean they just they just released my dissertation I purposely put a six-month hold on it for some personal reasons of (laughs) academic integrity (laughs) I I delayed it but that's out there and it focuses on the exclusion of black women's epistemologies but I do have a piece in women gender and families of color that's online about my experience being a Black woman in the classroom and how that informed the way that I educate. Uh, And I'm currently working on a couple of other pieces from my dissertation about um, how Black women are constructed using language and how patriarchy and white supremacy are promoted through that language. But 
more recently, I was invited again to a, um, not a spoken word, but like a, a storytelling event by the uh, by Ada Chang, who's a wonderful storyteller, who was in academia and mm -hmm. left, <laughs> right? But now does storytelling events. And so uh, even though I do a lot of my writing is, is primarily for um, academic audiences and for different academic journals, I've begun writing again um, in the format of storytelling or creative writing but still taking the lens of, you know, race and gender and intersectionality. Um, so I recently presented, and we'll be presenting tomorrow um, at another event and using something from my past in student affairs to narrate a story about the politics of race and gender in higher oh. education. So, so I'm doing both because the creative writing is cathartic, but also it's a way to sort of do my academic work without doing it academically. Right. So, right. so those things will come out. We'll keep you posted <laughs> when <Okay>. they're... <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. And we'll have to have you back on um, as a guest. You know, season seven is winding down. We've got a few more weeks to the close of the calendar year, but season eight will be back in full effect in January. So we'll have to schedule a date and have you back on. For sure. Has anybody ever interviewed you for your podcast? No, that's weird. But like, I'd be curious to interview you on these same questions. Ha ha ha. You know what? I'm going to take you up on that. I've had, there's only been one person so far who has interviewed me on my podcast. And we talked about, um, we actually talked about my book, Women Who Persevere, Navigating Motherhood with Power and Grace. Hey, check it out on ajinamama.com. Um, I'll send you a signed copy. Um, but no, you know what? That would be, that would be great. We should do that. We will yes. schedule that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> I appreciate you making this space for the conversation. It, it is never a, an hour is never going to be enough. I know because we I can mean, go on and on and on. I mean, yeah. we always do, right? <laughs> we do, and I think you know. Interestingly enough, while you and my mother are both in very different fields, she's in property management. You're in higher education. When I listen to both of you, your experiences are exactly the same, and so there's there's something to be said about what Black women are experiencing, have experienced historically, what we're experiencing right now in this moment in, in, in the U.S. with all the politics that are happening and where these things manifest, right? No matter what area we're in, we're working in, I'm hearing very similar stories from Black women about their experiences in, in the workforce specifically. So we'll do a part two for sure. Okay. Sounds good. It's a date. You heard it here first, uh, <laughs> Dr. Ashley Stone, thank you so much for joining me. Great conversation as always. I truly appreciate uh, your transparency. And um, I know we mentioned an institution that's near and dear to both of us, but, you know, we keep it real here on Light It Up. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me. I'm looking forward to having you back on. And for those of you who have tuned in, thank you so much for uh, joining me this week and make sure you uh, subscribe to the podcast, share this episode with a friend, and then don't forget to come back next week to see if I have a very interesting guest. So until next time, remember to light it up and shine bright like a diamond. Thanks for joining me this week on Light It Up. 
make sure you visit my website at www.lightituppodcast.com or www.ajinamohammed.com. You can also find me on social media using the handle at Light It Up Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or you can simply tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next time, light it up and shine bright like a diamond.